So this week, we're in Ezekiel chapter 24, and this is where Ezekiel's wife dies, and it's a picture of sin's great cost. It's a really interesting chapter as we go through, and there's a lot of application we can get from this. So let's do our memory verse together. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Beautiful. All right. So last week, in chapter 23, just to revise that quickly. What do we learn from that? Well, did they learn from their mistakes? The northern kingdom, Israel, as it was called back then, Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom. They thought that the Assyrians were the bee's knees. They thought the Assyrians had everything they wanted and they wanted to become like the Assyrians. And they put their trust in the nation of Assyria, the world power at the time. They became like them. They worshipped their idols and their gods and their worldly ways. And then God used the Assyrians they loved and admired so much to judge them by defeating them and taking them captive. And the lesson we learnt was the sin we love will ultimately destroy us or God will use the sin we love to discipline us. So we need to be careful about having idols in our lives. And God basically asked Judah the question, if you know what Israel did and how they suffered because of the bad choices they made, then why are you deliberately going down the same road? Don't you realize that you will suffer the same judgment? And it's pretty obvious they will. But why did they? Well, the problem is that sin binds, blinds and befuddles us. And we rush headlong down the road that leads to our basically physical, emotional, and you know sometimes spiritual, as far as our relationship with God goes, um, destruction. But we don't have to. The Bible is filled with examples that God exhorts us to learn from. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. These things happen to them as examples for us, talking about the children of Israel. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. Romans 15.4 Such things were written in the Scriptures long ago to teach us, and the Scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. So all the stuff we're learning in the Old Testament was written there for our learning, and the application is just as pertinent and just as relevant for us today as it was for them back then. So I need to pray because I forgot to do that. Father, thank you for the opportunity to get into your word. Teach us, we pray, through your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding. Help us to know what is true, what is false. And Lord, help us to apply what we learn to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week, it's Ezekiel chapter 24. Ezekiel's wife dies, a picture of sin's great cost. And we're moving forward in time. So in chapter 21, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and his army were literally 
on the road towards Israel and they came to the fork in the road and there was that story where God caused him to choose the road that goes to Jerusalem instead of Ammon. And so now, in chapter 24, we're going to find that the siege has begun. The siege has begun. The Babylonian army is at Jerusalem and the people are locked in. So, for the last six years, Ezekiel has been preaching that if they don't repent, then Nebuchadnezzar and his army will come back and lay siege to Jerusalem and destroy the temple and most of the people there will be killed. What were the false prophets saying? Nah, it'll never happen. You know? We've got the temple, the temple, the temple. And they had this false confidence in the temple. We'll see that later on as well. And they literally did what they wanted to do because they thought they could because they had this false confidence that because they had the temple, God would never leave them. He would never desert them. He'd never allow his temple to be destroyed. So what we see in this chapter is the most painful and hardest visual message yet. You know, Ezekiel gives action sermons. Well, this is an action sermon where his wife dies. And this is a shocking image that describes just how terrible it would be for the people once they had lost the desire of their eyes, which represents the temple, and their sons and their daughters whom they loved. And God also describes a cleansing that he would accomplish by this judgment. They would be like the scum or rust in a pot that was burned off. So Ezekiel 24 breaks down into two main parts. It's the symbol of the boiling pot in verses 1 to 14, and Ezekiel's wife dies in verse 15 to 27. So let's read the first part together. Verses 1 to 14. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, write down the name of the day, this very day. The king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this very day, and utter a parable to the rebellious house, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Put on a pot, set it on, and also pour water into it. Gather pieces of meat, every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder. Fill it with choice cuts. Take the choice of the flock. Also pile fuel bones under it. Make it boil well, and let the cuts simmer in it. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum, or rust, is in it and whose scum is not gone from it. Bring it out piece by piece, on which no lot has fallen, for her blood is in her midst. She set it on top of a rock, she did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust, that it may raise up fury and take vengeance. I have set her blood on top of a rock, that it may not be covered. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I too will make the pyre great. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, cook the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the cuts be burned up. Then set the pot empty on the coals, that it may become hot and its bronze may burn, that its filthiness may be melted in it, 
that its scum may be consumed. She has grown weary with lies, and her great scum has not gone from her. Let her scum be in the fire, in your filthiness is lewdness. Because I have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed, you will not be cleansed of your filthiness any more, till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. I, the Lord, have spoken it, it shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. According to your ways and according to your deeds, they will judge you, says the Lord God. Notice, they will, the Babylonians. So, verses 1 and 2, the start of the siege of Jerusalem. We'll just read those two verses again. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, write down the name of the day, this very day. The king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this very day. So, the ninth year, the tenth month, the tenth day of the month, a really important date for the nation of Judah in history. And we can liken it to 9-11 for the Americans. You know, the Twin Towers were destroyed by the terrorists. So, God here instructs Ezekiel to record the exact date when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, began his third and final siege of Jerusalem. And this date is also recorded in three other places. It's a really important date because it verified that God was true to his word. Imagine Ezekiel, six years or so, he's been warning the people that this would happen. The false prophets said, no, it won't happen. God won't let his temple be destroyed. God won't let Jerusalem be taken over. This event showed that Ezekiel and Jeremiah were the true prophets and the other prophets were the false prophets and their foretold judgment had begun. And we read in verses 3 and 5 where Jerusalem is described as a boiling pot. It says, And utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Put on a pot, set it on, and also pour water into it. Gather the pieces of meat in it, every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder. Fill it with choice cuts. Take the choice of the flock. Also pile fuel bones under it, make it boil well, and let the cuts simmer in it. So in verse 11 we see this is a copper cooking pot. And the pot represents Jerusalem. The meat is the people in it. The fire is a judgment or siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And the fire is bones. And someone has suggested, one of the commentators, it was human bones. So in verses 6 to 8, it's woe to the bloody city of Jerusalem. And it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is in it, and whose scum is not gone from it. Bring it out piece by piece, on which no lot has fallen, for her blood is in her midst. She set it up on top of a rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust, that it may raise up fury and take vengeance. I have set her blood on top of a rock, that it may not be covered. So, Why is Jerusalem the bloody city? Well, firstly, the innocent blood that had already been shed in it, and secondly, because of the blood that would be shed as Nebuchadnezzar attacked them. And the pot whose scum is in it, so the scum there is like rust, or like an impure deposit, like corrosion. So it's a picture of our lives if we're not repenting. We are corroded, we're impure 
And as the heat was applied, the poor quality of the pot would become apparent to all. The rust or corrosion would kind of, I imagine, flake off and contaminate the meat being cooked. And the scum or the rust represents the sinfulness of the people living in Jerusalem. And a quote from Paul, Filthiness, her abominations, or her lewdness are still within her. They have not been punished, restrained, or cast out by the execution of just and good laws. But the citizens have with obstinacy, impenitence, and with impudence continued in them. So basically, God has tried to correct them, but they have refused to be corrected, and it's like they're corroded and they're rusted. And verse 6, bring it out piece by piece, on which no light has fallen. So basically the meat was unfit for human consumption. They would cast lots and see who was going to get the piece of meat. Well, it was going to no person, on which no light has fallen. So basically, sin had defiled the people and they were good for nothing. The corrupt leaders, the unfaithful priests and the false prophets in Jerusalem had convinced themselves that because they had the temple, they were undefeatable. They thought that God would look after them because they were his chosen people and that he would not allow his temple to be defiled or destroyed. And they had no concept of God's holiness and hatred of sin. And so they had continued in their sin and become corrupted. That's what sin does. It corrupts us. And verses 7 and 8, For her blood is in her midst. I have set her blood on top of a rock that it may not be covered. So two ways this is true. For Jerusalem, during the siege, the sheer quantity of death and bloodshed would prevent all the bodies from being, or most of the bodies, from receiving proper burial, and therefore they would be exposed. And this was horrible if you were a Jew, because they had these strong traditions about you know, proper burial and things like that. Secondly, the blood also represents those who have died due to murder, being unjustly convicted, and human sacrifice. And if you go back to Genesis 4.10, God said of Abel's blood, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so the blood shed unjustly in Jerusalem also cried out for vengeance. There was no hiding from this sin. So you go back to Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel and God said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And it's crying out for judgment. Okay? There's no hiding their sin. It's all going to have to be paid for. So, verses 9 to 13, the perils of not repenting when disciplined by God. So, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city. I too will make the pyre great. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, cook the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the cuts be burned up. Then set the pot empty on the coals, that it may become hot, and its bronze may burn that its filthiness may be melted in it, that its scum may be consumed. She has grown weary with lies, and her great scum has not gone from her. Let her scum be in the fire. In your filthiness is lewdness, because I have cleansed you, and you are not cleansed. You will not be cleansed of your filthiness any more, till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. So, again, God repeats, Woe to the bloody city, in verse 9. So the judgment is not over, it gets worse. <laughs> in verse 9 it says, I will make the pyre great. So David Guzik says, The fire under the cooking pot is now described as a pyre. 
P-Y-R-E, a burning for the dead. That's what a pyre is, a burning for the dead. The fire will be huge and the contents of the pot will first be burned up. Then the pot itself will become hot and its bronze may burn. All of Jerusalem's impurities, her scum, will be consumed in the judgment coming upon her. Clark says, Let the siege be severe, the carnage great, and the ruin and catastrophe complete. And Vorder and Hop say, The great opportunity for repentance had passed by. It's gone. And therefore, thus says the Lord, the fire will be an agent of destruction with no purificatory features, whatever. The fire, now the final destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, will be heaped up and the pot will be reduced to molten metal. There will be no regeneration, only total destruction. So, it's not saying that the Israelites are no longer God's people, but Jerusalem, the city, would be completely destroyed. The temple would be completely destroyed. And everything they held dear will be completely destroyed. That's God's judgment on their sin. And as we know, if we continue in sin, we will be completely destroyed as well. The things that we hold dear will be completely destroyed. Our families, our friends, our jobs and things like that. Verse 12, it says, She has grown weary with lies. So another consequence of sin, weariness and tiredness. The draining away of our energy and enthusiasm for the Lord. Have you experienced that? When you continue in sin, your energy to serve the Lord, your enthusiasm for the Lord wanes. And someone said, sin will keep you from this book, and this book will keep you from sin. The more you're in the Word, then the less you want to sin. The more you sin, the less you want to be in the Word. We'll have less energy to read the Word, pray and fellowship and evangelize. And sin sucks the very life from us and robs us of the joy of abiding in God. And so to put it succinctly, what promises joy actually steals joy. You know, the world says you'll have fun, this will make you happy, but actually it's going to steal your joy. Verse 13, You will not be cleansed of your filthiness anymore till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. So, This is a reminder that God always has a plan when disciplining his people, and that plan is to lead them to repentance. They will be cleansed of their filthiness once they have been disciplined severely. So, again, the implication is that they would only seek repentance and be cleansed after God's fury had rested upon them. And so God will do whatever it takes to cause his people to come to their senses. So we come to an application. The first application here is blatant, unrestrained sexual sin is a sign of a nation ripe for judgment. In verse 13 it says, In your filthiness is lewdness. And Clark says about this, A word that denominates the worst kinds of impurity, adultery, incest, etc., and the purpose, wish, design, and ardent desire to do these things. Hers were not accidental sins, they were abominations by design. She was sinning, to put this succinctly, they were sinning willfully. They wanted this, and they were seeking it. And I looked up in the dictionary, lewdness, sexually unchaste or licentious. That's what lewdness means, sexually unchaste or licentious. And so sexually unchaste means impure. And licentious means disregarding sexual restraint. 
So disregarding all restraint, you're doing whatever they wanted, how they wanted to feel good. So it encompasses all sexual sin. Now, I counted how many times God had described them as being lured. 14 times after this point. And for us today in our culture, I've mentioned it before, but it's so true. Luredness is also a mark of our culture today. More and more our culture is sexually impure and is more and more disregarding or casting off any sexual restraint. It's kind of like anything goes when it comes to sexual sin and the whole LBGTQ agenda. And if God were addressing our culture today, I wonder how many times he would have to repeat or use the word lured to describe all the pornography, rape, incest, homosexuality, fornication, and adultery, you know. So again, without repentance, our nation is ripe for judgment as we wallow in the moral sewage of this world. Now, another application here, and this one is the perils of not repenting when disciplined by God. Verse 13, Because I have cleansed you and you were not cleansed, you will not be cleansed of your filthiness anymore till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. So, God was faithful to repeatedly, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, literally century after century, send his prophets to warn the people and ask them to repent of their sins so they could come back to the place of blessing. But what do they do? They consistently refused. And that's what it means. Because I have cleansed you and you were not cleansed. They did not respond to God's discipline. They didn't change. Now they have reached the end of the road. God's patience has run out and there's no more opportunities for repentance. And that's why it says, you will not be cleansed of your filthiness anymore till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. And so this is the peril or the danger of refusing to submit to God's discipline, of persisting in sin, of continuing to allow sin to harden our hearts. And in the case of the Israelites, their hearts had become so hard that they were beyond remedy. They were deaf to God's voice. And like we talk about in the potter and the clay, they had to be smashed and remade. And Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, it's a good summary of this concept. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. That's exactly what happened to the Israelites. They were deceived by sin and hardened against God. They were chasing pleasure in this world. And I'm going to read the historical account of this event from 2 Chronicles, and it highlights God's patience and the people's consistent refusal to repent and the terrible consequence of the people's choice to persist in their sin. and. One of the key phrases in 2 Chronicles 36 is in verse 16. It says, The Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. There was no more that God could do to reach out to them and call them back to himself. He literally had to break them. 
So let's read Second Chronicles 36, verses 11 through 21. And this will give us the background of this whole scenario and application for ourselves. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He was the last king in Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. But Zedekiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and he refused to humble himself when the prophet Jeremiah spoke to him directly from the Lord. Notice how these prophets speak directly from God. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, even though he had taken oath of loyalty in God's name. See, this was God's will that they submit to Babylon, but he refused. Zedekiah was a hard and stubborn man, refusing to turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Likewise, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful. They followed all the pagan practices of the surrounding nations, desecrating the temple of the Lord that had been consecrated in Jerusalem. Verse 15. Take note. The Lord, the God of the ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on his people and his temple. That's God's heart. Repeatedly, again and again and again, literally over centuries, he has been persevering with them, but they have not changed. Verse 16 is their response. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. You see, there come a day when God's patience will run out and judgment will come. The fall of Jerusalem. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young men and young women, the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The king took home to Babylon all the articles, large and small, used in the temple of God, and the treasures both from the Lord's temple and from the palace of the king and his officials. Then his army burned the temple of God, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and completely destroyed everything of value. That's what happens when we refuse to repent, right? Everything we've worked for is broken, destroyed, because of our sin. The few who survived were taken as exiles to Babylon and they became servants to the king and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest lying desolate until the 70 years were fulfilled just as the prophet has said. So what God said will happen. So again, be so careful not to take God's mercy, grace, loving kindness and patience for granted. We won't lose our salvation if we persist in our sin. Just like Israel still belongs to God despite their sin. But we will bring much shame to ourselves, the church and God. So sin brings death. Death to all we hold dear as a believer in Christ. Now, why is God jealous for us to follow him and obey him? Because he desires to bless us. If we commit harlotry and go after worldly pleasures and pursuits, making ourselves, as James says, enemies of God, then we forsake many of God's blessings. And Galatians 6, 7-9 gives us this 
very powerful passage. Do not be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. I'll say that again. Do not be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. You will always reap what you sow. Yeah. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. God's mercy and patience, what are they there for? What's God's purpose in his mercy and his patience? It's to bring us to repentance. And so let's not waste the opportunity to come back into fellowship with God and enjoy his love and blessings once again. And just a reminder, Second Peter 3.9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So in all this, just remember God's heart, that he is seeking people to come back to him. He does not like judging them. And verse 14, God always does what he says he will do. So it says, I, the Lord have spoken it, it shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. According to your ways and according to your deeds, they will judge you, says the Lord God. So firstly, in verse 14, I, the Lord, have spoken it, it shall come to pass. The false prophets made their own story up. The false prophets, they invented stories and scenarios and exactly what the people wanted to hear so they could continue in this sin without having to repent. But no, only God's word will come to pass. And Judah would be judged severely by the Babylonians. And verse 14 also says, according to your ways and according to your deeds. Now God is always fair. But I just want to point out a couple of things about God's judgment and his discipline. God will never punish us more than our sins deserve. So according to your ways and according to your deeds. And, in fact, he punishes us less than our sins deserve. <laughs> if God actually punished us according to exactly what we deserved, we'd be in big trouble. Okay, I know in my own life, if God punished me and disciplined me for all the times I've rebelled against him and done the wrong thing, I'd be in a pretty bad place. I wouldn't be here now, but God has been patient with me and I eventually responded to his discipline and came back. He's very patient with me. And some of my favorite verses are in Psalm 103, verses 8 to 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So, what do the Israelites deserve? <laughs> they deserve to be wiped out. They deserve to lose their standing as God's covenant people, but God did not. And he makes all these repeated promises to continue to have them as his covenant people. Now, another aspect of this is that the Israelites had entered into a covenant relationship with God, like the old covenant, the first covenant, the law. And that included blessings if they obeyed and curses if they did not. And so basically, they're getting what they asked for. 
they agreed, they basically signed this covenant with blood. If we do these things, then we'll accept these consequences. If we do these other things, we'll, we'll get blessed. Okay, Obedience leads to blessing, disobedience leads to curses. This is exactly what God said would happen to them if they continued to rebel. All right. The second part of this chapter is where Ezekiel's wife dies. So we'll read verses 15 through 27. It says, Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes, that is, his wife, with one stroke, quickly. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. In other words, don't outwardly mourn. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things signify to us, that you behave so? Then I answered them, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. Notice the authority that Ezekiel speaks with. Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul, and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done, and you shall not cover your lips, nor eat men's bread of sorrow. Your turbans shall be on your heads, and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is a sign to you. According to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. And you, son of man, will it not be in the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that on which they set their minds, their sons and daughters, on that day one who escapes will come to you to let you hear it with your ears. On that day your mouth will be opened to him who has escaped, and you shall speak and no longer be mute. Thus you will be assigned to them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. There's a lot of interesting stuff here. All right, 15 to 17. God tells Ezekiel his wife will die and how he must react. So just read those three verses again. Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Imagine if, you know, if you're married, God said, okay, I'm going to take away your spouse. Or if you're not married, you know, I'm going to take away the person you love the most. <laughs> As a sign for these people, so, you, you know, they can see my message and hear my message. It'd be tough. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So God is telling Ezekiel in verse 16 that I am going to take away the desire of your eyes, the love of his life, his wife. And a note here. There are few, if any, 
earthly things that we love more than our spouse. And this is the whole point of this action sermon. For the Jews, there were few, if any, earthly things they loved more than the temple and their children who were left behind in Jerusalem. So it sums up the purpose of Ezekiel's wife dying here. There are few, if any, earthly things that we love more than our spouse. And this is the whole point of this action sermon. For the Jews, there were few, if any, earthly things they loved more than the temple and their children who were left behind in Jerusalem. So sadly, they too would soon experience the same agony of loss that Ezekiel was already experiencing as these two precious things were respectively destroyed and killed as a result of Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Jerusalem. So we're going to get four things from this. God's compassion and gentleness in his dealings with Ezekiel. It sounds harsh, like your wife's going to die. But we'll see that God is actually very gentle in doing this. Secondly, God is preparing Ezekiel to be able to minister to the people in their suffering. So this is an important part of Ezekiel's calling, to be able to relate to and empathize with the people that he's ministering to. Thirdly, the heart of missions. We see that Ezekiel really, truly loved the people like God did. And we also see what it costs to be a disciple of Christ. So, firstly, God's compassion and gentleness in his dealings with Ezekiel. So God recognized that this was going to be hard for Ezekiel. The desire of your eyes. And the word desire means the object of desire, the delight, grace, beauty, something precious, and what is pleasing to the eyes. So God knows that this action sermon is probably the most difficult one for Ezekiel. And he empathizes with him. I just want to remind you that God doesn't enjoy seeing us suffer. And Isaiah 63.9 tells us that in all their affliction, he was afflicted. That's a New King James Version. And the NLT says, in all their suffering, he also suffered. And we know that God cares for us because it says in 1 Peter 5.7, give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. And so we see ministry is tough. There are some tough things that we must go through in ministry, some things that are going to hurt. But God is there and he's gentle and he understands, he empathizes with us as we go through those things. Now, secondly, God is preparing Ezekiel to be able to minister to the people in their suffering. So, as Ezekiel goes through his trial, he's going to experience God's comfort. So, this relates to our first point. God was preparing Ezekiel to be able to comfort his people when tragedy struck, when they lost their temple, when they lost their kids. So, if Ezekiel hadn't lost his wife, then Ezekiel wouldn't have been able to empathize with them or to share comfort with them because he hadn't first suffered and received that same comfort from God, right? So therefore God is preparing Ezekiel for the time when the rest of the Jews got their bad news about the temple being destroyed and their children dying. So there's a really important verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-7 to about this whole us going through trials and receiving God's comfort so we can then share that with other people. So 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7 All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, as Paul is writing this, he is going through severe trials, all right? He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. You notice that? He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in the comfort God gives us. And so, we ask, why do we go through hard times? One of the reasons, yeah, we've done the wrong thing, we've been disciplined. Another is persecution. But sometimes God will allow us to go through hard times just to prepare us so we can help other people. And there's a lady I know who's been ministering in Bulgaria for a long time. And as a teenager, she had a couple of abortions. And... That prepared her for her life's work, which was counselling women who had abortions. So she knew the pain. She'd experienced that. And because she'd experienced that, she could then help these other people. So in the same way God is preparing Ezekiel, he's allowing Ezekiel to suffer this pain so he can then be able to empathise and relate with the people when they went through a severe time of hardship as well. Now, the third thing here is the heart of missions. Loving God means loving others sacrificially. So, Ezekiel, first of all, Ezekiel loved God more than his wife. When she died, he didn't complain, but instead willingly obeyed God by not mourning for her, not outwardly. He was allowed to sigh inwardly, but not outwardly. Abraham, similar, he passed a test, a similar test when he proved that he was willing to sacrifice his only son Isaac in Genesis 22. And that's why both these guys, Ezekiel and Abraham, were able to be used by God in such a great way because they had God first. They had every part of their lives surrendered to God. Now, as we surrender to God, we experience his love in our hearts. We abide in his love. This love then overflows into our relationships with other people. So Ezekiel had this agape or unconditional love for the people he was ministering to, the people who hated him. So he was patient and gentle with them as well as very honest. He spoke the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. But he was also willing to sacrifice everything, including his wife, when asked to by God, in order to help the rebellious people come back into relationship with God. And Paul also shared this heart this heart of being willing to give and sacrifice so that others can come to know Christ, the heart of missions. It says in Romans 9, verses 2 and 3, My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. See how Paul was willing to give up anything just to see people saved? That's the heart of missions. Ezekiel was willing to go through all kinds of pain and hardship just to see his people come back to God. Now, what it costs to be a disciple of Christ, 
So another practical application is what it costs to be a disciple or follower of Christ. How do you become a Christian? Well, you have to put God first, yeah? That's what repentance is. It's being willing to do what God wants and willing to make his will more important and what he wants more important than what we want and our will. And so once we do that, that's repentance. And then the practical aspect of that works itself out over the rest of our lives. But we must be willing to let that happen first. So let's read Luke 14, 25-28. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. So, do you think Ezekiel accounted the cost? I reckon he had. He couldn't have been used by God unless he had. And again, like Abraham in Genesis 22, Ezekiel demonstrated that he loved God more than anyone and anything else. Now verse 16, it says, You shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So, basically, Ezekiel was not allowed to outwardly display signs of mourning. Now, this is going to be true for the rest of the people soon enough, in about I think a year and a half's time, the siege would go for about a year and a half, something like that. Because what would happen would, they would lose the temple, they would lose the city, they would lose, you know, a whole lot of people. Their family and friends left back in Jerusalem, that most of them would be killed. And so the shock, the grief, and the pain would simply overwhelm them. As well as the guilt that they had brought all this suffering upon themselves. So, they're going to be like so shell-shocked. They're going to be so traumatized that they won't be able to mourn. So Ezekiel's message is that you're going to be so hard hit by this calamity that's coming, that's already begun, but it's more when it's finished. Their kids are going to be dead and the temple's going to be destroyed. It's going to hit them so hard they won't be able to mourn. And Jeremiah 16, 5-7 makes this really clear. This is what the Lord says. Do not go to funerals to mourn and show sympathy for these people, for I have removed my protection and peace from them. I have taken away my unfailing love and my mercy. Both the great and the lowly will die in this land. No one will bury them or mourn for them. Their friends will not cut themselves in sorrow or shave their heads in sadness. No one will offer a meal to comfort those who mourn for the dead, not even at the death of a mother or father. No one will send a cup of wine to console them. So that's in Jeremiah, the same thing. The pain is going to be so severe, they're going to be so traumatized and so shocked, they won't be able to mourn. In verse 17, sign silence. God understands that Ezekiel is going to be sad. <laughs> okay, so Morgan has this quote. In that we see the understanding heart of God. He knew the sorrow of his servant's soul. 
both personal and public, and he did not rebuke it. In days when public testimony demands that we rise superior to private sorrows, it is good to know that he understands the difficulty and does not forbid the sigh. So I really like that. In days when public testimony demands that we rise superior to private sorrows. You know, sometimes we're not going to feel like doing what God wants us to do. Sometimes we're going to have to push through our emotional pain to do what God wants us to do. We're not always going to feel good about serving God. Verse 18 and 19, Ezekiel's wife dies. So I spoke to the people in the morning, that is, hey, everybody, my wife's going to die tonight. God's going to take her as a sign. And at evening she died. And the next morning I did as I commanded, that is, he didn't mourn. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things signify to us that you behave so? So basically, yeah. <laughs> Imagine how hard it would have been for Ezekiel to go out, you know, and what would he say to his wife? <laughs> how would you break that news to your wife? So he went out to the people, told them exactly what was going to happen in obedience. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. Again, a tough task. His natural reaction would have been to weep and mourn over the loss of his wife. What this shows, though, is that by God's grace, we are not slaves to our emotions. God, by his Holy Spirit in us, can help us to overcome emotions, even the very strong. And then verse 19. This is the desired effect of this action sermon. The people are curious now. Will you not tell us what these things signify to us that you behave so? They wanted to know what God was going to tell them. And they were to start to listen. So that's why God does these action sermons through his prophets. Verse 20 through 24, and God's explanation, God's answer to the people. Then I answered them, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. I, this is not what they wanted to hear, right? I will profane my sanctuary, the temple, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul. And your sons and daughters, whom you left behind, shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat men's bread or sorrow. Your turbans shall be on your heads, and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities, and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you. According to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. Just as Ezekiel's wife died suddenly, so the temple or sanctuary would be destroyed quickly, suddenly. And also their loved ones still in Jerusalem would perish, they'd be killed or die of famine or disease. Now, one of the big things with the Jews, one of the big problems they had was they put their confidence not in God but in the temple, right? And here God uses three phrases to describe their misplaced trust how it was in the temple building, not in God. It had become their arrogant boast. So an arrogant boast. It had become something that was most precious to them, the desire of your eyes, and something that they had delighted in the most, the delight of your soul. So instead of delighting in God, instead of God being the center of their affections, the temple was. 
interesting how we can make a building or anything really more important than God, but they did. So if they put their confidence in this idol, and in this case the temple is an idol, had become an idol for the people of God, the Israelites, then he'll have to take it away. And I don't have time to read it today, but Jeremiah 7, 1 to 15, Jeremiah has this message to the people regarding their false confidence in the temple and how they thought they could do what they wanted because of the temple. He says, the temple, the temple, the temple, and it goes on and it describes the way they just kept on sinning and doing what they wanted to do because I thought they could because I had the temple. So I'll let you read that in your own time. And verse 24, a quote from David Guzik, When this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. So David Guzik says, The consistent purpose of God throughout the book of Ezekiel is the revelation of himself, even through tragedy and crisis. In all their unexpressed sorrow, there would be a revelation of the Lord God. Now, the final section is verse 25 to 27. God explains the sign to Ezekiel. So we just read God's explanation to the people of Israel. Now God is speaking to Ezekiel. And you, son of man, will it not be in the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that on which they set their minds, their sons and their daughters? On that day, one who escapes will come to you to let you hear it with your ears. Now, in a few weeks' time, we'll get to Ezekiel chapter 33, and we'll see this fulfilled. There's someone escapes, they come and tell him, Temple's destroyed, most people are dead, and then they come and tell Ezekiel. On that day, your mouth will be open to him who has escaped. You shall speak and no longer be mute. Thus you will be a sign to them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So, he's a sign to them in at least two ways. Firstly, everything he had predicted had come to pass, especially the Babylonian invasion and the destruction of the temple. Now, interestingly, it appears from the time that God called Ezekiel to be a prophet or a watchman that he had been mute, except when he had a message from God. So basically the only time Ezekiel could talk is when God gave him something to speak to the people. So if you read Ezekiel 3, verses 26-27, God tells him, I'm going to make you mute unless I give you something to say to the people. and then in Chapter 33, verses 21-22, it tells us that once the guy came, the escapee from Jerusalem, then Ezekiel's tongue was loosed and he could talk when he wanted to. So that was another sign. So basically, God had, Ezekiel would tell the people, when the guy comes from Jerusalem to tell you that it's been destroyed, the temple's destroyed, then I'll be able to talk again. And guess what? He could. He did. So, conclusion. After seven years of preaching, around about seven years, with seemingly no effect, with the people rejecting God's message and trusting in the presence of the temple building instead, the third and final Babylonian invasion has started. So, put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes. I imagine him to be a really lonely man with very few friends but many enemies. And now he's lost his wife, the desire of his eyes, but still, his unwavering trust is in God. There's no indication that Ezekiel was starting to doubt God or rebel against God. 
So my prayer for us is that maybe be like Ezekiel, who was faithful to worship only God in the midst of a perverse generation, not be influenced by them, and was willing to count the cost of being a disciple of Christ. Maybe be a faithful watchman like Ezekiel and love those around us enough to warn them of the coming judgment. Maybe not fear, but find our strength in God. So Father, thank you for this message today in Ezekiel 24. Lord, may you strengthen us to go through the trials as we are your ambassadors for Christ. Lord, it's a tough job in this world. We are not appreciated. We are treated as scum of the earth. That's how the world sees us. Our message is not welcome. It's not wanted. But Lord, we persist in sharing it because you love these people. You sent your son to die for these people. God, give us the same kind of compassion and love for the people of the world that Ezekiel had, that you have, so that there's nothing we wouldn't do to see people saved. And like Paul said, I'd give up my own salvation if that would save someone. We can't do that, but that's how greatly he desired to see other people come into the kingdom of God. Lord, give us a heart, we pray. May our love for you overflow into love for other people. In Jesus' name, amen.